Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 748 for release on Sunday, June 11, 2023. On WaveScan today, the radio scene on an American garbage island, part two, Staten Island. From AIR to Akashvani, we'll be talking with Alan Graham of HCJB and our Philippine DX report from Henry Umarai. Well, in part two of the radio story on Staten Island, we choose a brief history of three different types of radio services in the Richmond Borough, which is a separate island, though yet a constituent part of New York City. First, there was Wired Wireless on Staten Island, and Ray Robinson has their story. Thanks, Jeff. After a short series of successful tests in Cleveland, Ohio and Washington, D.C. during the year 1922, Staten Island was chosen for the installation of a commercially viable, though ultimately unsuccessful, system of wired broadcasting. In February 1923, radio equipment was installed at the electrical generation plant of the Edison Corporation on Staten Island. However, very soon afterwards, all of the radio equipment was transferred into a three-storey house, three-quarters of a mile distant. Heavy electrical equipment was installed in the basement, there was a reception room and production studio on the ground floor, the radio transmission equipment was installed on the middle floor, and the top floor was set aside for use as an experimental laboratory. Regular commercial operation began almost 100 years ago, in September 1923, with recorded and live music, bulletins of news and information, and also various forms of educational lectures. The news was read live as it came in off a United Press teleprinter machine. There were also occasions when they carried off-air relays from local medium-wave stations in New York and New Jersey. Apparently, the system was given the oxymoronic name of Staten Wired Wireless. Specially designed receivers were rented on a monthly basis to customers and all that was necessary was to plug the receiver into an electrical socket in the home. Two types of receivers were available, though both were manufactured to a somewhat similar design. Initially, there was only one program channel and it operated on 40 kHz. Enterprising amateur radio operators who knew how to construct their own equipment could build a receiver that would tune long-wave 40 kHz. By placing the receiver near the electrical circuit in their home, they could thus receive the programming for free. However, Staten Wired Wireless closed on February 1, 1924 because of two major technical problems. One was described as the feeder effect, where receivers closest to the injection of the programming into the electrical system received a better signal. The other was known as the night effect, where the program service was severely attenuated by the multitude of electric lights that were switched on in the evenings throughout the island. So that was the end of the Staten Island wired wireless system after only five months of commercial operation. We move on now to the early medium wave scene. 
One of the very earliest radio stations launched in New York City was station WDT, which was owned and operated by SORS, the Ship Owners Radio Service. The main purpose for SORS was providing transmitters and associated equipment for maritime use. However, they did also own and operate three radio broadcasting stations, WSN in Norfolk, Virginia, WNAY in Baltimore, Maryland, and WDT in New York. Radio station WDT was licensed on December the 22nd, 1922, and initially they were on the air from 80 Washington Street in Washington, D.C. Along with so many other similar stations, they were licensed on 360 meters, 833 kHz, the entertainment channel. Early in the year 1923, station WDT chose to relocate to Stapleton on Staten Island. However, around mid-year 1923, WDT began a joint operation with the Premier Grand Piano Corporation, and they moved again to the Piano Factory in Manhattan at 510 West 23rd Street. In November 1923, station WDT closed for remodelling, but they never returned. Around the same time, a religious medium-wave station was under construction on a 24-acre site at Rossville on Staten Island. The WDT equipment in New York was purchased, reinstalled on Saturn Island and launched under the callsign WBBR with 500 watts on 1230 kHz at 8.30pm on February 24, 1924. Two wooden towers, 400 feet tall, supported the antenna system. This station had been built by and was operated by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York, a corporation owned by the Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1927, a one kilowatt transmitter was installed, and in 1928, the frequency was adjusted to 1300 kilohertz, although on a time-sharing basis with three other stations. In 1941, they moved to 1330 kilohertz, and in 1947, a 5-kilowatt transmitter was installed with a three-tower directional antenna system. Give another 10 years to 1957, and station WBBR was sold and closed. Here's a clip from the beginning of their final program. Here's something about the early years of WBBR. There's a group of men here in the studio that helped with setting up the original antenna, transmitter, and studio on Staten Island. The next part of our program will cover some of the outstanding events that WBBR has taken part in over its many years of public service. During these years, the work of Jehovah's Witnesses has grown enormously. Mr. M.G. Henschel will tell us something about this expansion. Finally, the president of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, Mr. N.H. Knorr, will be interviewed about the sale of WBBR and about what lies ahead in the Christian work of Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's begin our program by listening to the WBBR Watchtower Mail Course sing song 32 in the book Songs to Jehovah's Praise. The selection, Gratitude for Divine Patience. The station was then relaunched by the new owners under a new callsign WPOW. 
But like WBBR, WPOW also had to timeshare and was only on the air from 6 to 7.45 a.m. and 5 to 8 p.m. daily. Finally, a deal was arranged for WPOW to close at the end of 1984, allowing another station on 1330 kHz elsewhere in New York to operate full-time. So that was the second radio service on Staten Island. And now we come to the third mode of radio transmission on Staten Island. First there was wired wireless, then WBBR medium wave, and now WSIA-FM. Half a century ago, in the 1970s, a small group of students who were enrolled with the City University of New York and attending classes at their college of Staten Island on the Sunnyside campus gathered in the room of amateur radio station WB2BAZ. Their purpose? They wanted to establish a radio broadcasting station as a training facility for interested students. As a beginning, they ran a long wire connection from the room that held their licensed amateur station in C building to the cafeteria, and they played whatever recorded music was available. Subsequently, a new group of students initiated the construction of an FM broadcasting station with studios in E building beneath the cafeteria, with a transmitter and tower on top of the nearby Tote Hill, the highest point on the eastern seaboard south of Maine, giving them an antenna height of 630 feet. That student-operated FM station was inaugurated on August 31, 1981. These days, training station WSIA still radiates 11 watts on 88.9 MHz, and it holds the claim to two distinguishing factors – Station WSIA-FM states that they're the only radio broadcasting station located on Staten Island and they're on the air from the highest natural point in that widespread coastal area. Rocking the island for over 30 years. This is Staten Island's only alternative. WSIA Staten Island 88.9 FM. Thank you, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. An update now on Typhoon Mawar from listener Bruce Baskin in the Philippines, who wrote to us on May 31st, saying the typhoon is making its way north of Luzon province here in the Philippines right now en route to Taiwan. I'm 5,000 feet above sea level in the northern Luzon city of Baguio, and while there's lots of rain and wind, albeit intermittent, the coastal lowlands are getting the brunt of it. Nothing like what Guam dealt with last week, from what I can tell, because the typhoon, which is called Betty here, is starting to wind down, but much flooding is expected in Luzon, the Visayas, and even Mindanao. Meanwhile, Jost Jacob in India reports that T8WH shortwave in Palau was heard back on the air after the typhoon on June 4th at 0330 UTC, on 15680 kHz. Well, on Wednesday, May 3rd, an internal directive stated that all radio stations operated by the Government Broadcasting Service in India, Prasar Bharati, should identify as Akashvani instead of the very familiar All India Radio. So let's go back now to find out the origins of these identification announcements. Ray Robinson is with us again. On April 1, 1930, all official radio broadcasting stations in India at the time were taken over by the British colonial government under the designation Indian State Broadcasting Service. 
Six years later, on June the 8th, 1936, British radio executive Lionel Fielden obtained approval from the Viceroy, Lord Linlithgow, to rename the radio broadcasting service as All India Radio, thus with the acronym AIR. It was on September the 10th, 1935, that Dr. M. V. Gopalaswamy, Professor of Psychology at Mysore University, launched a radio broadcasting station at his rented home, Vital Vihar, in Vontikopal, in suburban Mysore city in the princely state of Mysuru in India. That new and quite unique radio broadcasting station was a licensed amateur station with a 30-watt locally-made shortwave transmitter under the call sign VU7MC, and it was identified on air as Akashvani, meaning sky voice or a voice from the sky. Over the years, the radio broadcasting stations in India generally identified as Akashvani in Indian languages and as All India Radio in English, particularly in their external shortwave services. However, it's interesting to note that the commercial aviation company Tata was redesignated as Air India on July 29, 1946. In spite of the similarity of names, All India Radio, AIR for radio, and Air India for aviation, there's no evidence of confusion between these two designations. Currently, the home service network of Akashvani radio stations is made up of 470 broadcasting centres, producing programming in 23 languages and 179 dialects. These cover 92% of India's land area and 99.2% of the Indian population. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray. Last weekend, we were very happy to see Alan Graham, the former host of the DX Party Line program on shortwave station HCJB in Quito, Ecuador, before it left shortwave. Alan was attending a conference in Orlando, Florida, and afterwards he came to Okeechobee to visit us. So, of course, I brought him into the WaveScan studio to have a little conversation. So today in WaveScan, I have a a guest with us who I know many of you will remember because uh, many of you have have been shortwave listeners for for many, many years, and you'll remember uh, the iconic shortwave station HCJB in Quito, Ecuador. And if you're listening to WaveScan, that probably means you like DX programs, and and (laughs) their, their DX program was DX Party Line, which uh, is probably the oldest uh, DX program in existence. Uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore, but, <laughs> but it was uh, probably the oldest one. Um, uh, Alan Graham, welcome. Welcome to uh, uh, Okeechobee. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff. And the first time to be here at your facilities in Okeechobee, the last time we did an interview for WaveScan. We were in the offices and studios in Miami. Aha, uh-huh, yes, very good. Um, yeah, well, welcome to uh, uh, WRMI. Uh, I, I want to go back, if we can, um, to uh, uh, a lot of people will remember, of course, uh, HCJB, one of the biggest sh- stations on shortwave in the Americas and in the world, probably. Um, but it all ended, except for one frequency, which we'll talk about. Uh, it all ended in, in what year was that? Uh, 2007 was when we stopped doing English broadcasting. And then uh, I believe it was 2009 when we stopped doing any of the Spanish broadcasting. Uh, you, you didn't tell me we were going to do the interview, so I did not study for <laughs> the, this test. That's okay. So, so I'm going by memory, which could be a little scary. 
but I think that's roughly the dates. Now, the HEJB transmitters were actually in a place called PIFO, outs- outside of Quito, uh, a, a sort of a, well, I don't know, the mountain or valley? or Right. It was yeah. about a half hour away. I think with the traffic, it's probably over an hour away now. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was right next to where they were going to build a new airport, right? Correct. It was due south. I mean, it could not have been more improperly placed in terms of uh, the plans for the new airport. Obviously, when that facility was built, which I think was like in the 40s, uh, we had no idea that they would ever move the airport out there. Uh, But once they decided where the new airport was going to be located, we were like due south, right in the flight path for planes coming in. Mm. And how tall were those towers? Um, I... (laughs) Tall you, enough you, to be a problem for airplanes, right? Me for, <laughs> I said I so. didn't study for this test. I know one was 120 meters tall because uh, I climbed that one. Wow. Don't ask me why. Uh, <laughs> but I, one of them was 120, and of course we had quite a few. But I don't think it was so much the height of the towers as it was the amount of RF energy that was coming off of there that could then affect navigation. Uh, okay. So you were going to have to move. At one time, wasn't there a thought of maybe moving them to somewhere else in Ecuador? That's correct. Um, a place called Saya. We only like places that have four letters in the names. <laughs> uh, and that is about three hours west of Guayaquil, which is where I currently live. And uh, the plan was to move and establish the facility in Saya in the what is now the Santa Elena province. Um, but then... Um, our board of directors made the decision not to move ahead and uh, and build that plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, I don't know if this was part of the decision, but a lot of people were thinking, oh, shortwave is dying. Uh, not that many people listening to shortwave. Uh, and, and then there were also political problems in Ecuador, right? Well... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but that's nothing new. <laughs> um, it's Latin America. Uh, the uh, I think part of it, yes, was based on what were the listening trends in shortwave. Um, another big part of it was the fact that the area that had been purchased, and which we technically still own, <laughs> if you're interested, we, it is for sale, um, did not um, have easy access to any of the electricity um, and other services that were needed. So it was going to be a very significant investment. And as far as I know, the government uh, did not provide any kind of indemnization uh, for having moved us from the the current site. Uh Again, that's based on the knowledge I have higher-ups within the organization may know better. Because HCJB was, was uh, and still is, uh, owned by uh, Reach Beyond in, in the U.S., right? Um, no, technically no. Uh, <laughs> HCJ, you didn't study for your test either. Uh, the, the operations within Ecuador uh, were under what's called the World Radio Missionary Fellowship, which now is known as Reach Beyond. Uh, so the frequencies uh, that were under the World Radio Missionary Fellowship for the Quito facility is now under an organization that is 100% Ecuadorian called Misión HCJV La Voz de los Andes Ecuador and it only operates the FM frequency and the repeaters for uh, several areas. Uh-huh. And But we mentioned uh, that there was one frequency that stayed on the air. It was a, a, a 6050 kilohertz. Uh, Correct. Uh, rather lower power 
uh, transmitter. Um, was that in PFO also? Uh, we had always been broadcasting the 6050 from PFO, and then when that was coming to an end in 2009, there was a, a group of German missionaries that formed an organization called Asociación Vosandis Media, or the Vosandis Media Association, because they felt it was necessary to maintain that frequency in order to have broadcasts in several indigenous languages, mostly Quechua, but there are some others also. So they raised the funds, uh, mostly through donations from Germany, in order to move um, the transmitter from PFO to the top of Mount Pichincha, right near the the place where we have the FM transmitter on 89.3 for the for Quito and the Pichincha province, and also then to build the antenna and organized. Uh, group to go up there and construct the antenna. Uh, I'd be glad to show you the pictures, Jeff, that won't work well on WaveScan itself, <laughs> um, but it was actually um, a group of missionaries and some of the the actual audience in from the Quechua language, the Quechua people group that helped uh, build that antenna up on Mount Pachincha. Is it uh, a, a directional antenna or omnidirectional, or do you know? I told you I didn't study. <laughs> But I, I really don't know what antenna they have up there. I can find out and let you know for an updated edition. <laughs> there we go. So, but but it was uh, it's a regional service, though, That's right? correct. Mm-hmm. That's correct. For the Andes area. Correct. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, all right. So this was 2009, 2009 that the correct. shortwave shut down. Correct. Except In for, Spanish. And for the indigenous languages, I'm not sure how much... You know what was the time period because I was had been moved into another area, um, so was not involved in this. Um, but um, so I can't say exactly when the signal started broadcasting from Mount Pachincha. Um, but I do know that the Vosandes Media Association was organized in May. 27th of 2009, and the reason I know that is because our FM station now in Guayaquil is under the Vosantes Media Association in order to comply with broadcast law in Ecuador. Now, our frequencies are still under the the World Radio Missionary Fellowship for the Guayas and the El Oro province. Um, We're waiting for the frequency competition to open up so that we can then apply for those under the Vosantes Media Association. No, it's 6050 on the air. The uh, content of it or the broadcast language can change uh, throughout the day. So there's mm-hmm. Quechua programming, there's some in Ashwar, Kofan, uh, and others. And then um, a lot of it is in Spanish during the day, and it's basically simulcasting our FM frequency from Quito. That was Alan Graham of HCJB2 in Guayaquil, Ecuador. We'll have part two of that conversation in an upcoming wave scan. Now let's go to Henry Umarhai with our Philippine DX report. Hello everyone, to our dear shortwave listeners, wherever you are, welcome to the June 11th edition of the Philippine DX. This is report number 195. I'm Henry Umarhai in Bacolod City, Negros Occidental, Central Philippines. Glad to be back and thank you for listening. I would like to thank the following listeners were sending a reception report most recently, Mr. Richard Lemke in Alberta, Canada, and Mr. John Sarkari Alvarez in Cavite here in the Philippines. 
to all of you. Thank you very much. Reception logs for May 2023. May 7, China Radio International on 17710 in English from Beijing, SRO 725, SIO 455. May 7, NHE World Radio Japan on 15280 in Japanese from Yamata at 7361 at 0825 SIO555 May 14 World Christian Broadcaster K in the last on 9695 in English from Point at 0821 SIO555 May 21 Radio Taiwan International on 12065 in from Kuchang at 0808 SIO433 and May 30 KBS World Radio 9770 in English from Kim J at 0823 SIO444 Send us your comments, suggestions, reception lags and informations to pilipinasdx at gmail.com That's P-I-L-I-P-I-N-S-D-X for pilipinasdx at gmail.com This has been Henry Umaday for Voice Canada in Macaulod City Negras Occidental Central Place and saying mabuhay at maraming salamat po. Thank you, Henry. And we have Ways Karen today with uh, more music from New Caledonia, Hayarasan, with Cap Ver Le Bonheur, which means moving toward happiness. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week on the program, another topic regarding American radio stations in Australia. We'll continue our conversation with Alan Graham of HCJB in Ecuador and our Bangladesh DX reports coming up next week on WaveScan. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, KVOH in California, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. 
I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Now.